0: Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis, I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is a conversation with Hall of Fame tennis writer Steve Flink for Tennis.com, author of the book The Greatest Tennis Matches of All Time. Steve and I get into the 2001 US Open quarterfinal between Andre Agassi and Pete Sampras. Undoubtedly the best match that those two ever played. It is one of the greatest rivalries in the history of tennis and I gotta say, Steve outdid himself in this one. He, he's currently writing a book about Pete Sampras, and uh, clearly this was a match that, that he's passionate about. Um, even though it wasn't a final, it was a quarterfinal. I mean, Steve seems to remember every single point from this match like it happened yesterday. Uh, and uh, I thought that we also got some some good insight from Steve about Pete because he's been interviewing Pete for this book, which is coming out soon. We also talk about that book uh, specifically at the end of the show. So without further ado, Steve Flink. We're joined once again by Hall of Fame tennis writer, Steve Flink. Steve, thanks for coming on again. This is round two.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I hope it's as good as round one, Gil. It was a lot of fun doing Lendl McEnroe at the 84 French Open final. And now we move to two Americans. At the U.S. Open, two well-known Americans. We go to
0: the 2001 U.S. Open quarterfinal, Pete Sampras, Andre Agassi, one of the greatest rivalries in the history of the sport. Now, I, I mentioned it just now, quarterfinal, but it felt like a final. Everything from the telecast to the emotions of the players to the crowd at Arthur
1: Ashe Stadium. Why do you think this felt so big? I, it's hard to say. I think that people were so thrilled to see them out there in the quarters, fans not knowing if it might be the last time they'd see them in New York. Of course, they did end up meeting in the finals the next year or so. But they weren't taking anything for granted. And Pete was seated only 10th that year. Andre was seated second. There just was a feeling, I don't know, there was some, it was an idyllic atmosphere. And I think uh, there was, was just so much anticipation for this match. And Sampras had come off a good win over Rafter in the round of 16. And that was a big deal because Rafter, of course, had won the title in 97 and 98. Pete had last won it in 96. And then and now he's going to play Agassi. And, and it was just so much riding on the outcome for, for both of them. And, yes, it just had the feel of a final for a lot of different reasons.
0: Ash is, of course, the, the biggest tennis stadium in the world, and John McEnroe, who grew up there as a native New Yorker, played matches there, then went on to call matches, he said that that was the first time that he had ever seen Arthur Ashe really full, 100% no empty seats.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It, 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 was, it, it was eagerly anticipated. I'd mentioned Sampras being wrapped here. I guess he had beaten Roger Federer, who would course had beaten Sampras at Wimbledon so they both were coming in pretty confident I think and then uh, the crowd was just they were thirsting for this match and now they'd seen many of these fans Gil had seen Agassi and Sampras beat in the finals of the 1990 open 11 years earlier when Sampras really surprised Agassi beat him he blitzed him in straight sets and was a brilliant performance and really caught Agassi off guard because Agassi had been the heavy favorite going into that match and had been in the semifinals of the previous two years and pete had really exploded into prominence by getting to that final and then they'd met in the finals in 95 when they were one and two in the world that pretty much settled who was going to be the best player in the world for the year because agassi had beaten sampras in australia but uh, sampras had come back to win wimbledon and this was the match of the year they were on the cover of the new york times magazine on the uh, right before the tournament and. That was one of them probably their most consequential meeting and now here they were again in the quarterfinals in so that again points to why it felt like a final. They played two finals there before. They were still two great players who were not were maybe slightly past their primes you could argue, but they turned back the clock that evening. The other thing to mention, Gil, before we sort of start chewing on the match itself, the conditions that night were the best I've ever seen during that era pre-roof pre-roof, because, of course, the roof was finally used, it, it implemented in 2016. It, that changed everything in the stadium in terms of wind. There was always a lot of wind swirling around Arthur Ashe Stadium in the old days, uh, up until the that roof was put on. That changed everything. It became much more still. It took away most of the wind, and it, it changed the conditions decidedly. But on this particular night, for some reason, not only was it a clear and idyllic evening, there was hardly any wind at all. So it was really conducive to the kind of electrifying, high-quality tennis that both players gave us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's continue before we get into the match to go into the, the background of each player. Sure. And again, we have a contrast in, it's you know not, not so much personality, although we did have that, but career arcs because Sampras was a, a model of consistency throughout the 90s. And Agassi had this extreme fluctuation where he drops out of the top 100 and, and now he has this resurgence. He's up to number two in the world. Pete is down to number 10. Uh, so let's, let's hit Andre first. What, do you, what did you make of Andre's collapse and subsequent rise back up the rankings?
1: Well, that was just the nature of the man, the nature of the beast. You know, he was a he was a more complicated personality, who, who sometimes could lose his sense of commitment and sense of direction. His confidence could also uh, dwindle. And it, it, it it took Sampras was more unshakable, unswerving in his belief in himself, while Agassi had sort of roller coaster rides up and down in terms of how he felt about himself and his game. So, obviously, the pinnacle was the '95 final that I was just mentioning to you, when they were one and two in the world. It was after that. That was such a shattering loss for Agassi because he'd won 26 matches in a row coming into that 95 final. He had not lost since the semifinals of Wimbledon and Sampras, then he dominated the summer, won four tournaments in a row, but Sampras toppled him in the 95 U.S. Open final. So then Agassi drifted somewhat in 96. He he managed to stay in the top 10 in the world, but he did not have a good year. And then 97, it got worse. And eventually he, he, he found himself in the fall of 97 that's when he found himself down to 141 in the world. Uh, that's the period you're mentioning when he went out of the top 100. And then he worked his way back up nicely in 98 and 99. He had Sampras played the Wimbledon final in 99 and Agassi won the French that year. So by the time that, and then in 2000, Agassi was was going strong. And the difference, what happened in that period is that Sampras, who went in 2000 Wimbledon, beaten Patrick Grafter in the final for what was then the record breaking 13th major. He lost an edge of motivation after that. That was a record he'd been chasing. That was really his prime purpose in, at that stage of his career. So between, after Wimbledon 2000, despite reaching the U.S. Open final in 2000 as well, and losing to a Red hot or Rats happen, Sampras, Jesse was having trouble week in, week out, tournament in, tournament out, getting as up for his matches. But Agassiz was on a resurgence. That's why he was seeded number two. That's why he had himself in that position. And he'd lost a, tough five-centered rafter at Wimbledon. And he was feeling, uh, coming into the tournament, he'd also won three in a row against Sampras, head-to-head, starting with the Australian in a very good five-cent match in 2000. And then two matches in earlier in the one season, where he beat them both on hard courts, both in California, at Indian Wells in the finals, and again in Los Angeles. So he certainly had a reason to be quietly confident coming into that match. On the other hand, he knew full well that Sampras was a big match, big occasion player, that Indian Wells and, and Los Angeles were really not, you couldn't pay, put them in the same portrait as you could the US Open for Pete Sampras. And, and so I'm sure in the back of his mind, I guess he always knew there was this, there was, this uh, there was gonna be a chance that Sampras would sort of strike fire, that he would, he would find that inner fire within himself to play his finest tennis.
0: Right, almost like a, like a sleeping giant that's going to be bit.
1: amazing at some point. Yeah, that's right. Almost like a sleeping giant. And he, what he could, it was as if he could turn on a switch. He was really a, a remarkable that way. Agassi needed to feel like he was beating the pulp out of everybody. That's how, that's how he got his confidence, was sort of a, you know, a, a more typical winning tournaments, winning matches doing it with consistency and feeling like he could do it again. Well, Pete could go, despite the fact that he could then go off the rails and go down to 141 in the world. But when he was right, Agassi felt like, okay, this, this, I, I'm, I'm groomed, I'm primed, I'm ready. And Sampras could be similar, but, but he also, because of the nature of his game, Agassi, you mentioned the contrast earlier. Obviously, we had Agassi, who was the greatest baseliner in the game, the best return to serve, up until you could argue now that Djokovic has surpassed him. Up until that time, definitely the best return to serve, and a different kind of returner from Djokovic in that he he guessed more. He went for more. He was really trying to knock the cover off the ball, read your serve one way or another, commit to whether a guy was going to serve him wide or down the tee, and then rifle the return back at blinding speeds, as opposed to Novak, who gets so many returns back into play. Andre's idea was, I'm going to hit a winner if I can. Mm-hmm. And he had just the package of his forehand and backhand were spectacular from the baseline and his magnificent passing shots. And then in Sampras, we had the quintessential serve and volleyer, you know, who who the greatest serve we had ever seen, I believe to this day, the greatest serve I've ever seen. And then in fact, he became more and more committed to being a full fledged serve and volleyer as his career wore on. And that's really the way he played by this stage. So you had a phenomenal, excellent contrast in styles between these two guys. And playing on the hard courts in New York at the Open, I always felt that, that those are pretty neutral conditions. Agassi had won the tournament twice at this stage. He'd won in 94 and 99. And Pete Sampras had won it four times, but he hadn't won it since 96. So they both were really comfortable on the hard courts in New York and they both loved playing in front of the American fans.
0: Yeah, and, and it's fascinating that, that you go back to, to Pete accomplishing uh you know that 13th major milestone and perhaps the dip in motivation because we see that so often and at this point Sampras is uh number 10 or the number 10 seed i don't know if he was number 10 in the world uh and he hadn't won a title in over a year so let's yeah, get into
1: this and and uncoincidentally he hadn't won a title since that 2000 Wimbledon when he beat Rafter yeah. which is the proof if, if ever you need the ample evidence, that's it right there. That it, you know, And understandably so, because that was a record he wanted badly. His parents were there to watch him win it over. They'd never seen him win a major before. They flew over. So that really definitely took away, you know, f- there, there was no way that he could compete with the same intensity he had up until, an all-out commitment that he had up until that time. But he was beginning to find it coming into this match with Agassi. And meanwhile, Agassi was feeling great. About his game, so we really had all of the elements in store. Everything was in place for a magnificent contest from both ends of the court. There was not a service break in this match. I mean, I don't want to give away any more than that, but let's just I mean, say enough. neither player broke, serve
0: Right. Well, we're going to tie breaks, and uh, so in the first three games, both players had break points, yes, and that's just yeah. that's just not how the rest of the match went. But uh, the level was really good, and this first set tie break. Was, uh, was my favorite of, of the three. And I, I don't think that's, that's not a, or the four, excuse me. Yeah.
1: That's, not, that's not a bold take at all. This was a sensational tiebreak. Sensational, yes, because it, it featured a spectacular comeback from Andre Agassi. Because, uh, you know, Pete Sampras had, was in command, served his way into a 6-3 triple set point lead. Then Andre came back and played two good points on his own serve. But you figured Sampras, perhaps with one swing of the racket, would end the set when he served at 6-5. But Agassi did something on that 6-5 point that I thought was very smart. He, he moved back a shade. He gave himself a little more time because Sampras hit, did get a first serve in, but Agassi managed to make a good low return and got Sampras in trouble and won the point. That was that was absolutely crucial because then he ended up, although he went to 7-6 and had a set point on his own serve only to double fold it away, he still came back one at 9-7. So it was... It was it was the most dramatic of what would be four tiebreaks to be sure, no doubt about it. But you would have thought it. it was, two things, Gil: Andre Agassi, having won the first set, only once before in his whole career at the Open, and that was in the '88 semis against Yvonne Lendl, had he ever lost a match from the first after winning the first set. So you had to feel like he was in. A, he was he, all of these great players are great front runners, but Agassi, I think, felt like he needed that set even more than Pete Sampras did. Yeah. And I and you would have thought it, it, you you felt like it was going to be a big lift to him and then you wondered how could would Pete deal with it well having come off three losses on the road to Andre and knowing that he probably should have put that first set tiebreak in his pocket was he going to be uh, was he going to be disconcerted and a little bit down on himself. That's it made for a fascinating second set.
0: Yeah. And and the set point at 7-8 the the mini break that was ultimately uh, sealed it for Agassi was a forehand volley that that Pete would expect to make it was Yes it was, he would he would he yeah. was there
1: he was there it was not a it was a relatively low volley but he was right there and and he just I think at that stage he was a bit shell shocked a little bit surprised to still be uh, to having to fight to stay in this breaker instead of having put it away who's to say and the crowd was all they were exhilarated and Agassi was highly charged probably a lot of factors led to that missed volley but No doubt about it. It was an errant volley that you wouldn't normally see from Pete Sampras.
0: Yeah, so a couple of players, uh, or both of them, I should say, making some uncharacteristic errors because Agassi did double fault on on set point. Right, he rushed himself.
1: When he got to set point seven, he was so, he was so enervated and so inspired having come from triple set point down that. Yeah, you could see him rush himself before hitting the second serve. You could feel it coming. The and, point before, and then he comes right back with an ace on the next point, which yes, I thought yes, he showed the poise that he had that night.
0: And the point before at, at six all was this incredible defensive lob by Andre. So it looked yeah. like he was certainly losing the point. So at this point, the crowd it was, was going. It was a, sky, uh, it
1: was a sky, sky high lob that I yeah. think Sampras was convinced would go long. And he retreated. He retreated, but it was the kind of ball that you normally would see land about a foot or two over the baseline. And when it stayed in, then Sampras was suddenly forced to: Do I really go for this overhead on the bounce, or do I play it safe? And he was—he was definitely uh, uh, out out of sync when he when he hit that smash.
0: Yeah. So you know that 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 tiebreak was was so special. I promise we won't go point by point like that for for most of them, but that was uh, very important. Now, as this match progressed through the second set, it was very clear that Sampras. You know, he was, he was serve-volleying on serve. So when he was serving, getting to the net wasn't a problem. But on his return games, he was really passive. He wasn't forcing the issue. He wasn't coming up after the return like sometimes he would do.
1: Well, and you know what? There were stages you, later on. There was more of that. When later we, on, he we, did it. Yeah, later on, he did. You're right. But part of it, too, is that all through that match, Gil, Agassi's backhand passing shot was about as good as I've ever seen it. it. You know, the chip had to be perfect to force him to miss any of those passing shots, and I think Pete was aware of that and might have made him just a little hesitant at times to come in. Not to mention, Agassi also kept his first serve percentage up well into the into the mid sixties, and that was also very helpful. That Pete wasn't getting quite enough looks at second serves, and in turn, he was so aware of how good Agassi's first serve was that night that it put him. Put him under a little bit more pressure than he expected to be, I would say, because it was a particularly good serving night from Agassi.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's got to be one of the worst players in history to try to chip and charge to the backhand. I mean, it's
1: yeah. Well, and that's the problem. And then you're not really going to come in much on his forehand either. And, you know, it, it, yeah. you, 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 it's a dilemma. And there are there were other matches like the 2002 final. Sampras didn't feel like he had to make perfect chip backhand approaches because. Agassi was, was not quite as sharp on the pass and was missing a few, few of his sort of standard cross-court passes and his pinpoint down the lines. They just, he was a little bit off on the passing shot, and Sampras could sense that, too. So some of it is just sort of looking at the lay of the land and figuring out where, where he's vulnerable. But that night, in this quarterfinal, Agassi was just almost letter-perfect counterattacking.
0: Yeah, and and let's be be clear. Pete tried both tactics. He tried, you know, hanging back and getting into baseline rallies, and he tried charging forward, and neither worked. Of no, course, well, that's party. just it.
1: Exactly, neither, neither, neither worked because Agassi Agassi was really off the ground. I, frankly, I think throughout the match, played about as well as he can play the game. I mean, he was really in in excellent form all, all around. The serve, the way he backed up the serve, he didn't. Re- Despite the fact that he couldn't break Pete, he still returned really well at times. He he tested him. So everything everything was working well for for him, as it was from, from Sampras on his end. Each each man was tr- trying to implement his game plan and impose himself, and they both were doing an excellent job of that.
0: The second set to me, which also goes to a tiebreak, that was the best tie break for Sampras, the most dominant tie break for Sampras. And I mean the, if, you, if you just look at the, the mini breaks, all of them were sensational by Pete.
1: Yeah, yeah, they were. It started off with that great little angled backhand pass on the first point. He just, mm-hmm. he knew it was important. He'd been a couple of points away. There was one big point when he was serving to save the set before the tiebreak. And Agassi hit a backhand pass that clipped the net court. And uh, it's, but Sampras was so alert up at the net that it didn't throw him at all. And he still was able to make the four volley. And you saw the look on his face after that point. He knew he had to have this set. This set was now an imperative for him. Agassi wanted it and loved the idea of a two set lead, but Sampras had to have it. And I think that's why you saw him bring out his best in that second set tiebreak.
0: Yeah. He, he won it. He won it seven to. Uh, yeah. So a dominant he, set
1: with a beautiful kind of reflex volley off his belly button. And Agassi hit a pretty yeah. hard passing shot right out of it. Sampras picked off the backhand volley and turned it into a drop volley and then did, went into a big fist pump because I think he was really exhilarated to have. He also hit a beautiful running forehand on the preceding point that kind of handcuffed Agassi. So I think he was, he knew how crucial that breaker was, Gil. He had to have it and he played it beautifully.
0: One of the One of the major themes that I also want to get into about the, uh, the match as a whole, and, and Sampras in general, is how big he was hitting his second serve. And I think you see with a lot of the, the biggest did you servers call it,
1: Did you call it a second serve?
0: Yeah, should because, I have called it a
1: first? <laughs> well, you know what, what Courier and, and Agassi, what these guys would often say was he didn't have a second serve. He had two, he really had two first serves. And yeah, the second serve, and you know what, Gil, it was big, it was especially these last couple of years of his career. I would say maybe the last three or four years, the second serve just got bigger and bigger. And I remember once he played when he beat Agassi in Cincinnati in in 1999. They played a semifinal, and Agassi in Sampras beat him in straight. And after the match, he said, "Well, you know, I I couldn't break him except for one time when he tried when he decided to serve a couple of double faults. And what he meant by that sarcastic decided was." And he knew that Pete was willing to risk double faults. In this particular match that we're talking about at the one Open, he did serve 12 double faults in four sets. But it it was never uh, uh, encouraging for Andre to watch Pete double fault because these were big second serves. And he knew the odds were they were going to be going in and they were going to be landing on lines and they were going to be finding corners. So there was nothing psychologically to be gained by Pete having sporadically double faulted. And that was the really the philosophy that he had by this time in his career: was, I don't care if I double fault a bit more, but that second serve is going to be a, a weapon that's close to my first.
0: Yeah, th- that that was a big deal. How well Sampras was hitting that second serve, and yeah, you mentioned the the twelve double faults, but it, it didn't. Even Paul Anicon, who was interviewed on the USA broadcast after the second set, I you know, I, and I forget the interviewer's name, but. He actually asked Paul, uh, who was francisco's coach, if I didn't say that about the double fault number, and Paul goes, "Eh, it's fine. I'll take it."
1: Oh yeah, uh, well, it wasn't. Right. No, I, think he incur- I think he encouraged him. Not that he had to encourage him, but it was. Yeah, by this stage, if Pete, Pete's the whole thing was he really wanted to be very intimidating with that second serve, and it was nothing reckless about it because to hit it as hard as he does, point in and point out and serve ten, serve twelve double faults over four long tough sets there's nothing that's that's really not a bad stat given the number of free points that he won with the second serve which was so devastatingly potent yeah
0: sampras saves break point in the third set at one all with uh with a and volley on a kick serve kicked it into andre's body and uh came in and finished a backhand volley for a winner and this set ultimately also goes to a tie break Um, this is a tie break that I thought Andre was a little bit loose and there were some errors. Well, you know what, Gil,
1: you could argue argue that he was a little bit tight as well. Yeah. When you say loose, there's a fine line sometimes between too loose and too tight. I think he was feeling it a bit now. You could argue it either way. I just think at this stage, he was feeling it. He knew knew the momentum was with Pete. He knew that he'd been a little lucky to win the first tie break, very gutsy very courageous, but needed some good fortune to get out of that 6-3, triple set point deficit, that he'd been totally outplayed in the second set tiebreak. And he also knew that Pete serving well in these breakers was going to have the advantage. The great server versus the great returner tends to be that the the big server has the edge in a tiebreak because he can win more quick free points. And I think Andre feared that a bit, and it made him tense on his own serve.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree. I, at Love 1, there was a, a backhand error that was relatively unforced, and at 2-3, another backhand error off of a chip return from Sampras.
1: Right, right,
0: I mean, Pete wasn't trying to do much with the return, and and Andre just missed the next ball. Which yeah, Sampras
1: was smart that way. He often would try to, He 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 was able to induce a lot of errors, not just from Andre, but from Jim Currier and Michael Chang, his other big rivals. Sometimes by not trying to be too, do too much with it, but dare them to come up with something big on a big point. And Andre definitely felt it. It was particularly disappointing for Magassi's end when he was 2-3 because he'd gotten, you know, he'd come back from the mini break and now had a chance to at least sort of stay on serve. At that point, was was a devastating blow to him. And then, of course, you, you know what happened at the end of the tiebreaker. break it was a couple of big swings of the racket from Sampras, and it was over.
0: Yeah. An ace at 5-2, ace at 6-2. Yeah. Two, two, awesome. two
1: beauties in a row. It closed it out confidently. A nice 7-2 breaker. And that, obviously that put him in the driver's seat at two sets to one. But we had a lot of tennis left to play after that.
0: Yeah. So two sets to one in three tie breaks. And I got I to ask, and I don't know, I don't know how you're going to answer this one. So I'm excited to ask this one. I watched Agassi and Rafter. In the, uh, in the Wimbledon semifinal earlier in, this, in the era of the quarantine. That was a really, really great Wimbledon semifinal match where. well, they
1: had, Yeah, and, and you know what? It was their second in a row. They, yeah. they, played, they played a five-setter in the 2000 semis at Wimbledon and, and Raptor won, and now here it was again right. in the match with Agassiz serving for the match at 5-4, 30-15 in the fifth set. That was a crushing loss for him.
0: Yeah, I thought Agassi was the better player all throughout that match. Well, and he
1: thought he thought so too. Yeah. But you know, it's about big points. It's about closing matches out. And of course, it, even though he was a much better server by that time in his career, as he showed against Pete in this match, he he wasn't a, he. You know, he didn't have the luxury of Sampras, who could serve the aces and also back it up impeccably, or the the classic kind of uh, methodical serve and volley type game of a Rafter. So Andre you know, he got a little bit nervous there, I thought, when he served for the match against Raptor.
0: Do you think that Agassi, this is what I'm getting at, do you think that Agassi uh, could have been a better player under pressure? Do you think that there were a lot of matches where he lost tight ones because of how he performed in the biggest points?
1: It's hard to say. I mean, that that you can make that argument. I mean, I think in, in the case of Sampras that Sampras over the course of their careers was just the better big match player, period. Uh, I think you could argue that. I mean, for instance, at Wimbledon, where he won the title only one time, 1992, you look at some of those losses, the two that we're just talking about, the two five centers in a row against Rafter, where he played beautifully in both, probably should have won at least one of those, and, and uh, you know, he, he was crushed in the 99 final by Sampras, but, and then he you you look but you look back on uh, on his career there and and some of those losses and you say okay he probably was capable of doing a, he probably should have won a few more of these big matches but he won his share and he ended up his career with eight majors and he he did a, he did a great job overall after starting off his career in sort of Lendl like fashion he you know he was not very confident on the big occasions and he lost the ninety finals of. The French Open to Gomez and Sampras beat him the U.S. Open. And for, so for a while there, he was, it was shaky for Andre on big occasions. He got better. He definitely improved.
0: Absolutely. And, and Sampras is kind of on the other end of that. He was so famous for coming through under pressure, maybe the most clutch server of all time, perhaps. I want to ask yeah, you. No, about, I
1: don't think there's do any think? doubt about that, but also just clutch player. Yeah, it it was more than just the serve. It was the mentality and the big point. He just he just, you know, it's funny in the course of I talked to him a little bit about him doing this book called uh, Pete Sampras Greatness Revisited that will be out soon. It's uh, it's waiting to be printed at this point, but it should be out in time for September if we have a U.S. Open. But I talked to him a little bit about this whole notion of choking because he so rarely choked, if ever. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like it. And there were some matches where he got tight, but he still ended up winning them. One match against Guga Kerrton in the finals of Miami in 2000, where he, he needed seven match points to close him out in the four-set tiebreak after leading 6-2. And it almost got away, but it didn't get away. So I, I think you could say the, 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 the greatest clutch player, certainly, of modern times. Yeah.
0: What about the tactic that Sampras employed often... In terms of sometimes giving up return games, and sometimes he wasn't one of those players like a Nadal or a Connors who gave a hundred percent on every point. He had some energy conservation that that he would generally go to, um, and I think that's one of the reasons why, or, or maybe that contributes to the uh, number of tiebreaks he played. And but why do you think? Why do you think sometimes when it was two all and he was down? 30 love on, on a return game. He just, when he got a ground stroke, he went for the winner. He didn't want to do much running. He wanted to conserve his energy.
1: Well, yeah, you, you know, you touched on it. Some of it's conserving energy and some of it's, yet yeah, waiting for that opening, waiting for that opportunity. it would obviously be a very different attitude when he got you down love 15 or love 30 than yeah. he was going to try to apply the pressure. And all the players knew. If he broke you once, the set was almost certainly over. He knew that too. So, and he also had belief in himself in tie breaks, Gil. That was another factor. There were a lot of things, but yes, he, he didn't feel like he was going to be Rafa or Andre tried to play every point with full brimming intensity. That wasn't Francisco's way. So yes, if he got behind, that was something, of course, that Pancho Gonzalez did too. The, the great American player, uh, you know, who uh, Poncho, one of the great dominant forces in the game in the fifties and sixties. And, he and, and uh, U.S. champion in the late 40s. Pancho Pon- would do the same thing. As his attitude was, you're not going to break me, but I'm also not going to bust my gut trying to break you if it's not necessary. I think it was very smart, to tell you the truth. You know, it's sort of know- knowing when to strike. Sampras right. knew knew when to strike.
0: Yeah, it, it definitely worked. And, you know, it it was so much harder, I think, to hold serve against Sampras at four-all and five-all than it was at love-all and, and one-all because he just, he upped his game.
1: Well, the the evidence is right there, Gil, because when he played Andre in the Wimbledon final of 99, you know, and he's won the first couple of sets, he's got him, he's two sets to love, and, and suddenly at, at five-all in the third, he gets the break and serves it out. There's a good example. U.S. Open final of 95, same thing. Two sets to one-up. Five-all in the fourth, it's getting a little tense. He breaks and serves it out. And U.S. Open of, of 2002, the next year after this match, not 7-5, but he got the break at four-all. Instead of five-all, he got him at the break at four-all and served it out. So he really had a knack late in sets for coming up with those critical breaks.
0: Now, he doesn't do it here. 3-4, um, Sampras faces break point at 30-40. He hits an ace. And then Andre – Now, keep in
1: mind, keep in mind, he loses that point. Andre's going to be serving to bring the match into a fifth set. So, that was a monumental point.
0: Big ace and then two more big serves for the hold. uh, Yeah. At at four all, Agassi saves break point. A really good point that Agassi plays at 30-40 where he has Pete on a string until – Yeah.
1: Great point, great point. Pete was running. He was digging. See, now, there was an example where he would – he would, have run, he would have carried that, the rally on for 40 strokes if he had to. He was digging for everything in that point, but you're right. Agassi was on top of the rally, and Sampras ended up missing a backhand. So, understandably, because he was under stress the whole point.
0: Yeah. 5-6, um, another really, really great hold by Pete from Deuce. He hits an ace on a second serve, which just has to be frustrating. And then uh, a really incredible half volley. Um, to send that one to a breaker.
1: Yeah, half volley winner. Agassi just stood there in, in utter amazement and <laughs> uh, semi-disgust, thinking he did hit a good enough shot to win the point. But again, that was another – Sampras might not have come up with that shot at 2-all, but this was – okay, I have to get to the tiebreaker here. i got to try to finish this off. And, yes, he came up with two beautiful points in a row with the ace and the half volley to get into that breaker.
0: All right. Fourth set breaker. No breaks have served so far. Are we going five, or uh, or will Sampras advance to the semifinal? They trade mini breaks early. Three four is the crucial point. Andre is serving, and it's almost like he wanted to do a delayed serve and volley, and he just got caught in no man's land. He then kind of half volleyed it back to Pete, looked to retreat to the baseline. Yeah. Did, down the line backhand was wide open for
1: Sampras. Um, and he knew he was dead. He knew he was dead. It really didn't matter whether he, whether he came in or retreated. He was dead, you know, because the half volley was too weak. And Sampras, when you give him that kind of time off the backhand and the ball's not up high on back backhand, he can be deadly with that shot. Uh, it reminded me a little bit of Lendl's backhand down the line, the way he could line that up and drill it. Uh, at, with great accuracy and pace. And sure enough, that's what he did. Yeah. I guess he got, he got a little flummoxed there and, you know, and and, and it showed it, it showed in the way he retreated.
0: Yeah. And so Pete, Pete will get a little nervous here as well. He'll miss a forehand volley at six, three that he would expect to make. Then he'll double fault at six, four.
1: That was the shocker because yes, yeah. the forehand volley was one thing. He hit a good serve and volley and then missed a, Makeable forehand volley, but okay. You figure, okay. He's still got another one in hand here. This one he's gonna big serve and it's over, or serve and volley combo and it's done. But no, the double fall was a shock. He shocked himself a little bit too. Can we just go back for a second, though, Gil? Sure. Before we we finish off this match, but before they started that tie break I've never seen anything quite like it. I was gonna With go back. The fans, the fans were on their feet because they knew potentially the match could end in this tie break. They they knew maybe it wouldn't. Maybe Agassi would win the set that would go five, but they weren't taking any chances. They got on their feet, and you knew they were applauding both players, not only for that night, but they were applauding them for all the joy they'd they had watching them for over a decade. And and, uh, it, and it was chilling. And I remember Sampras told me that it, it, it kind of threw him. Like five seconds, he sort of came out of himself. He wouldn't normally do that. Normally, he probably would have just put... Something like that salute from the crowd out of his mind, but for five or six seconds he was he was feeling it, and uh, it, it there was a, it was a sentimental kind of feeling, and i 'm sure Agassiz felt exactly the same way. It was a great tribute to both of them because you knew it was for both of them they weren 't applauding for one or the other; they were applauding for both two great Americans who'd given them so much pleasure over the years on that court
0: couldn 't have said it any better myself it was It was an incredible standing ovation before. That's so cool. now,
1: now we should go back. I know you you took us up to, to the double fault. So now here's what's interesting, Gil. I suddenly serving to get back to 6 all, and right. maybe to stage a revival that could have been very similar, could have been almost identical to the first set tiebreak because he had come back from 6-3. So now he's back to 5-6, having saved two match points. And I think Sampras did, again, did something very intelligent. He just chipped his return low and kind of almost daring Agassi to come in behind it. And Agassi, and, 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 uh, still it could have backfired, but Agassi came in. He, he, he wasn't quite sure. Sampras was looking to move to his right for a forehand and Agassi tried to go back behind him to the backhand and miss that forehand. And, Sampras had, had started, to, I think he might have been able to get back to it. It was hard to tell. He had started to change, To he sort of frozen in his footwork and was ready to move back toward the back end. But it was a, just a smart percentage play. The last thing he wanted to do was dump a return into the net or chip a return long and, and let Agassi back to six all. He had to make him come up with something there, and it worked.
0: Not the first time that that, and, and we did go back to it, um, in the, I think we we talked about it in the third set tiebreak. Uh, Pete was Pete was great at putting returns back in play in the tiebreaks. He just didn't miss a lot of returns in these four tiebreaks. So there it is. That's the match seven uh, or six seven seven six, seven six seven six seven six for Pete. And it
1: ended. It ended by the way at twelve fourteen in the morning. So it actually carried over into it was a night match that it went well over three hours. And here it was going. In, and and by the way. That crowd that you mentioned at the outset, the packed crowd that McEnroe had brought up that you alluded to, yes, some people left, but there was a remarkably large percentage of the crowd left on this weeknight uh, evening. Again, a great tribute to these two guys that they felt that they could not miss the end of this match. Yeah, gotta love New York, Steve, right? Oh, it, it was a great moment. And I have to say, Gil, in all of their, I saw a lot of their matches It ended up it was 17-14 for Sampras coming into this match. He ended up winning the series 20-14 with a concluding match being the U.S. Open the following year in the finals. Again, a little bit of an interesting twist because Sampras was down to 17 by that, seeded 17. Agassi had slipped from two to six in the seedings, but still much higher than Sampras. And Agassi had come off a win over the defending champion Leighton Hewitt, and Sampras beat him in four sets. But that, So that their rivalry ended at 20-14. but this match in New York, in the quarters, I put it in my match, in my book, The Greatest Matches of All Time, because, and normally, I almost all those matches, go were finals, a lot of them were finals, a few semis, but I just felt like this was a quarterfinal that was not a quarterfinal. It gets back to what you said in the beginning. It really felt like a final, and they played it as if they were playing for the title. And the fans, they, they, yes, the the tournament ended up on more of a downer note because Leighton Hewitt beat uh, Sampras in the finals after Sampras beat Saffin, who was the defending champion. So Sam, Sampras had that great run of beating Rafter, Agassi, and Saffin, the three guys who'd won the title since he had last taken it himself in 96, but he had nothing left physically, and he got obliterated 7-6, 6-1, 6-1 by Hewitt in that 2001 final. But I just feel like, the final that year was really not the final. The final was Sampras versus Agassiz. That's the match everyone would remember when it was over.
0: We've seen that before. Sometimes that's just how these tournaments play out, where you have the final before the final, and yeah. uh, it, it, it's it's hard to complain when when you get. But the to-
1: other thing, Gil. Sorry for interrupting. I just the other point I was going to make was. It was the highest quality match they ever played against each other. Part of it, I think, was these conditions that I described the, I, the, the lack of wind in the stadium that night, which really, and perfect temperature, not too hot, not too cold. Uh, so they had ideal conditions and they both just produced magic. They really produced magic. Agassiz could hardly have played any better. He might quarrel with a few choices he made in the tie breaks, but then Sampras in turn could could question himself for what happened in the first set tiebreak. They they, were, they each could have certain, I'm sure they each had some laments about things that happened in the match, but it was an extraordinarily exhilarating and high quality match. And to me, easily the best match they ever played against each other.
0: Yeah, it, it was absolutely, it was a pristine match. I wasn't planning on on going here, but... Can, what can you tell us about, about your book on, on Pete c- coming out?
1: Well, it's a career, you know, it's a very much a tennis book. It's, it's really a very thorough examination of his career and focusing very heavily on the 14 majors that he won. And he talks at great length. I did a lot of interviews with him, and he reflects on those, on, on those triumphs. And then, in turn, I got, the, I got people like Rafter, Goran Ivanisevic, Jim Currier, Michael Chang, and even Novak Djokovic, not as a rival, but as a young kid observing him. You know, the, someone he idolized as a six-year-old, watching him play in the Wimbledon final against Jim Courier. Great reflections from Djokovic there. But again, all these rivals. I got McEnroe and Lendl as well. So they talked about their, their battles with Pete at the 1990 U.S. Open and just about Pete in general. And then the likes of Billie Jean King and Martina Navratilova as well, among the women, Tracy, Austin, and also Mary Carrillo. So it was a group of about, over, I'd say all together, interviewed about 23, 24 people. And even Greg Wiesetzke, who had kind of a controversial match with Sampras at that last US Open in 2002, where he had made the comment after the match that he didn't think this was the same Pete Sampras, he's not the same guy, basically saying he was a step slower, he was over the hill, and it caused quite a, a lot of ripples in the press room. And Sampras let it roll off him. But it it was one of the – it was a memorable thing, that tournament. And I spoke to Ruzetsky this past fall and got him to recollect what happened, too. So it was it was a lot of fun, particularly the stuff from Pete directly, but also what they had to say about him, all of these great players.
0: Well, what can be better than that? Oh, we need it. We're There's – you know, we're all looking for books to read. So I, I, hope know, I wish we could have, I wish
1: we could have had it out. It would have been great to have had it out now, uh, during, during the pandemic, but it will, it'll be out soon enough. And I hope everybody will enjoy it. And I think, I think he enjoyed reminiscing a lot on his career and reliving some of those moments and talking about what was going through his mind and what, what was driving him as, as a great player.
0: Yeah. It's great, especially because he, he's not, uh, He's not always putting himself out there in front of you know he's he's not broadcasting, he's not coaching, so it, it'll be really nice to to hear what some of the things he he has to say
1: yeah, he doesn't have a need for that there are a lot of people in the game for whatever their reasons good for them who who really want to stay in the game and still be seen and be very visible whether they're coaching or commentating whatever it might be he he's never had a need for that if the right opportunity came along, I think he would do it but I think he's very comfortable with his family life in California and, and uh, it, it makes him a little different. And you're right. I, hopefully it makes people all the more eager to hear from him and to read what he has to say in this in this book.
0: Well, Steve, uh, fun as always. Thanks so much for coming on and we'll do it again soon.
1: Thanks, Gil. I look forward to our next match. I'll let you pick it. Sounds good. All right. All right.